0: Hi and welcome. This is episode 434 of the Let's Talk Bitcoin show. On today's episode, the hosts are off and we've got a pair of interviews for you. First, we talk to John Cantrell, the author of Juggernaut, a new communications layer 3 application being built on top of layer 2 Lightning Network, which is itself built on top of layer 1 Bitcoin. It's a lot of layers, but as a technological concept currently in beta and usable, it's a fascinating project and we talk about it. After the break, we're joined by Alex Gladstein of HRF.org for a discussion on political expediency in the age of pandemic and what crisis has revealed about various governments and different types of governments around the world. Alex is one of my favorite returning guests with his global human rights-focused work, taking him to some of the most interesting and most oppressed places around the world. And this conversation is what the kids used to call a banger. <laughs> I actually have no idea what the kids would call it today, but you can send me an email at adam at if you've got a better idea. Today's episode is sponsored by eToro.com. Thank you very much to them. Let's Talk Bitcoin is owned by the hosts and editorially independent, but you can find new episodes every Sunday on the Coindesk Podcast Network at Coindesk.com, the LTB Network at LetstalkBitcoin.com, and on our privately managed show-only subscriber feed at LTBShow.com. With all of that said, I'd like to welcome you to this, episode 434 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, and an editor at Coindesk. With all of that said, let's jump right in. I'm here with John Cantrell, developer of the Juggernaut Messenger application built on top of Bitcoin's Lightning Network and which is currently in beta. John is very privacy conscious and we've agreed to let him appear on the show using a voice modifier. John, thank you very much for your time. Of course, happy to be here. So, over the last couple of months, it's become clear, if it wasn't before, that with public square type tech platforms such as YouTube from Google, Twitter, Facebook, and basically all heavily used social media services, there is a lot of censorship going on. In this time, we've also seen censorship jump out of public facing platforms and appear on what many think of as private or even encrypted chat applications, with WeChat being an example that comes quickly to mind. I think most people are in favor of censoring some things, with probably the most obvious of obvious examples being child pornography. But in this age of pandemic, we're increasingly seeing what I've been thinking of as narrative censorship. We're simply sharing an opinion or worse still, information that doesn't fit into the preferred social or government narrative is viewed as disinformation and censored or at least debunked in some sort of quasi-official way. So with that as backdrop, tell me about Juggernaut. Why did you build it? What does it do? And how is it going to make things better? Sure.
1: So Juggernaut is, as you put it, a messaging application built on top of Bitcoin's lightning network. And I kind of built it after being inspired by Juiced, who is one of the LND developers. He made WhatsApp, with a T, prototype messaging application, kind of just demoing this technology, this key send payment technology. And it was kind of pretty basic demo, mostly command line. I thought, you know, I can take this and kind of run with it. I really liked the idea. And when I saw this idea that you could make a... Censorship resistant payment, you know, on top of Bitcoin and Lightning Network, and at the same time includes some arbitrary piece of data, such as a message, or as you can get into later, you know, you can include pretty much any arbitrary message. It kind of sparked this idea that, hey, we can take what I think is Bitcoin's most important property, its censorship resistance, and kind of extend that outside of payments into messaging. And so we can have a communication protocol that can't be stopped by governments or they can't tell you what you're not allowed to talk to your friends about or you know, things like that. And so that was kind of the main
0: motivation behind starting a project. So from an identity standpoint, how does this work? The thing that came to mind as soon as I learned about your project, and I think it'll probably be prominent for a lot of our earlier listeners as well, was the BitMessage protocol, which didn't use the Bitcoin blockchain, but it borrowed its proof of work concept and it borrowed its idea of pseudonymous identities by nature of having these kind of long alphanumeric, you know, non-human readable addresses. So Lightning Network doesn't really have the concept of an address in it. So talk to me about identity. How do you deal with that on the Lightning Network? That's a great question. And I think it's
1: actually one of the differentiating points between things like Telegram or Signal or WhatsApp is that there's juggernaut, you don't need to create an account. You don't have to provide your phone number. There's none of that, but it does come with the drawbacks, you know, that using a decentralized system like this has, and that is, you know, contact discovery or, as you mentioned, your identity. And so on the Lightning Network, your node that represents you on the network does have a public key. And so that's kind of the core identifier that the nodes use and that Juggernaut uses. So you have what looks like you know, a Bitcoin address a long string of characters that represents your public key and it's unique to your node and your private keys control it. That is the best way to identify someone on Juggernaut. But the Lightning Network also came up with this concept of an alias. And like it sounds, it's just a username essentially that you can with your node. But anyone can pick any alias; nothing stopping you know anyone from using alias. Like you can have twenty John Kentrells on the Lightning Network. So the only real way to differentiate and be sure that you're talking to the right one is this public key. And so in Juggernaut, you are identified as your alias since you know the Lightning Network is relatively small at this point, and so you can pick you know your alias, and in general, you'll be okay. But if there are clashes, then it'll fall back and append some, like, I think six characters of your public key to that. So in today's version, you can use both the alias or public key to identify someone.
0: What that makes me think of is how Discord deals with this, right? Because anybody can go on and register sort of any name that they want, but then it's going to wind up if you're doing something that's not completely unique, appending a big long number at kind of the end of it that you won't see as your username. But if you need to be able to definitively tell who someone is, then you kind of falls back to that, like you said. So you get the advantage of the human-readable thing, but you still wind up using the kind of key portion of it for authentication and kind of to make sure. Yeah, that's exactly right. I'm not
1: too familiar with how you know, Discord works exactly, but it sounds basically exactly the same, like you're saying. You get the benefits of the alias, but if you need to be 100% sure, you fall back to the public key. And at the same time, I'll mention that every message that you send is currently signed before you send it by your node and that signature is included with them. And so that's to also help this idea of someone spoofing to pretend to be you, phishing to be you. And when you receive a message, it verifies that the signature does indeed match the public key that it sent to you. So there is a layer of verification and you can be pretty sure you're talking to, you know, a certain node on the network.
0: All right. So this is built as a layer three on top of layer two Bitcoin lightning built on top of layer one Bitcoin. So (laughs) talk to me about the process of building an application on top of a layer two. I don't think that's something that many people have that much experience with yet.
1: Yeah. You know, I don't know if we're officially calling it a layer three, but yeah, I think a lot of people would, and I tend to call it that. But yeah, there's sort of no standards. You know, the lightning spec is still kind of floating you now these days it's, it's becoming a little more rigid but even in just the latest 0.10 release of lmd there's been some breaking changes so currently you know there's a couple of people experimenting with this key send idea and so juggernaut is one there's you probably heard of the synx chat guys and there's an android app i think it's called Manysend or AnySend. and so we're all kind of playing with this idea of building layer three on top of lighting network and I think we're going to need to kind of evolve, or I hope we evolve towards some kind of specification for like arbitrary message passing on top, so that all these apps and they can be extended outside of messaging. But you know, they become interoperable, so it doesn't. You know, I can send a message to someone using the Sphinx mobile app from my desktop Juggernaut client, and it just works. It's difficult, and it's also easy in a sense that there is no spec to conform to. So you know, I get to decide you know exactly all the form structure of the messages that I'm passing around, but I think it's gonna come with a bit of a challenge once we start seeing more people doing things like this. So I think it's up to us early guys to kind of, you know, come up with at least some strong pro start,
0: always, you know, adapt it as we move forward. So right now, the kind of multiple chat approaches that are happening on top of Lightning, Those don't speak the same language, but what you're saying there is that as this kind of more matures, then probably, I mean, there is certainly an incentive for there to become this sort of broader protocol that all of these different types of applications agree to. So that's sort of maybe not your end goal, but is it accurate to say that that's sort of a step on your path or a step on the path of these types of messenger applications is get to a point where they work and then once they work, synchronize them or harmonize them so that there is one protocol that other applications can build around?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know. It's not really, like you said, an end goal, but it would be nice. I think it's like a nice to have, and it sort of already works. I can't speak for everyone, but I think most people from what I've seen are going off of sort of the WhatsApp that Juiced put out prototype, which uses you know certain fields to contain the message, some fields contain the sender ID, things like that, and the signature. And you can see that some apps, I know I think that any sender, many send, sorry, application does actually receive juggernaut messages and it comes down to how strict you are on the validation. So in the initial release of juggernaut, I make sure that the structure of the message I receive is exactly this that, I'm exp- that you know, juggernaut creates. I talked a little bit with Alex Bosworth about this and some other guys, and I think I'm going to relax that constraint considerably so that I think it'll basically give us this interoperability automatically. The downside is when you relax this validation that it is possible to like spoof a message like, instead of just rejecting, hard rejecting the message, if it doesn't match the structure that Juggernaut expects, we're just gonna put like a, you know, verified check mark or something surface it in the UI that hey, you know, this came from an unknown client, unknown format, but we were able to kind of parse the message out anyway. So here it is. Receive this message. We're not a hundred percent sure what it is. And so that's something that I hope to have out in the next minor release. And I think that will get us a long way with interoperability.
0: Yeah. It seems like so long as you're sort of not giving people a false sense of confidence and it's an optional additional layer, then it seems like that probably is the best path forward. Yep, for sure. So Lightning is a payments network first. Talk to me about how Juggernaut interacts with the actual payments side of the Lightning network. Is it just built on top using it as a messaging protocol or do you envision these things working together in a tighter way?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot there. So in the early days, it's funny to call it early days since I think we're still in the very early days of Lightning, but pre 0.9 LND, I don't know, I think it was when it first was released. If you wanted to receive a payment on the Lightning network, you would have to generate an invoice and give that invoice to someone and then their lighting node could pay it. And so at some point they introduced this idea that I'm not sure everyone calls it this, but they call it a key send payment. And the idea is I can send you a payment or your node a payment without it generating an invoice first. So I can send a payment to a key, hence key send. And with that, there's also this idea of being able to store what they call custom records in the payment that you make. And so with the combination of these two things, I can now send a payment to any public key that I want, having to do anything first, kind of like how Bitcoin works. Like I have an address, I can send money to it without you know, them having to do anything beforehand. And so it's kind of nice that it brings it back to that I don't know a paradigm that you're used to with Bitcoin. And so it's that combination of the key send payment with these custom records. And so basically we're storing the messages and the signatures and any other kind of arbitrary data that you want in these custom records. And so you can think of it as like a single request you know, or a single payment that has the message inside of it,
0: if that makes sense. Yeah, so I think that makes sense. So a single payment that has the message inside of it. So effectively, when you're sending one of these messages, you are sending a payment. It's just a payment that has almost no value in it.
1: Exactly, so in the current implementation, it's sending a one Satoshi payment. It's not the minimum that Lightning Network supports. Lightning Network actually supports milli Satoshi's which are one one 1,000th of a Satoshi, but most of the nodes on the network by default, I believe this is true, most of the default settings currently are to have one Satoshi as the min payment. And so right now it's using a one Satoshi payment. So if I send you a message, hey, it's gonna send you a payment for one Satoshi, then I say, what's up? It's gonna send another Satoshi. But what's nice is each conversation you have, I'm maintaining a balance. And so I know that I've sent two Satoshis to you so far, and you've sent me none. And so your client's going to know, okay, when you respond, Oh, hi, you're going to actually send me two Satoshis. So it tries its best to maintain a net zero balance so that in the long run, you're not going to end up paying net any Satoshis in any particular conversation. That's not to say that it's completely free. So in lighting network, the payments are routed across potentially multiple hops and those nodes that are routing the payment for you can charge a routing fee. And so there's no. Easy way around that if you want to route your message or payment through the network. So your payments will net out to zero, but you will still be paying the routing fees. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that does make sense. This is kind of fascinating, actually, because basically what you're saying is that the application seeks to make it so that it's just using the payments as the message transmission layer. And it's really not about money. But while you were saying that, I was thinking, well, actually maybe I would want it to be about money. Maybe I would want to, as a user, set a certain minimum amount that somebody would have to include in order to send it to me because otherwise, what's to stop my network from getting completely spammed, right? From getting tons and tons of payments. So right now, obviously, you kind of got it set to net out. But talk to me about that. What is building on top of Lightning in this way enable you to do? And what's kind of your broader vision for the application as it develops?
1: Sure, yeah. So... As you mentioned, I don't know if you take a look at the website or the app yet, but you can see that that's one of the other main benefits, I would say, over something like a Telegram or Signal or WhatsApp, is that it's got native payments built right in. So, in today's version of Juggernaut, you can send a payment or even this idea of a payment request. And when you do something like that, it does do the same messaging and payment protocol. It's just changing the amount from one Satoshi to however many Satoshis you want to pay. So, you get native payments built right into the Messenger, which I think enables a, the ability to send payment, but a lot more. And so if we want to talk about, you know, where I see this going, I think, you know, the grander vision is not necessarily just, you know, a messenger application. I think if you think about this concept, which I think was never possible before, you know, before this technology, which is, I can send a payment and a message at the same time. I know I keep repeating that, but I think it is pretty fundamental here. And so if you think about the message, not being just a simple like text message that I'm chatting with someone, but if you take a look at like, you know, how a browser interacts with a server, right? This HTTP request response process that happens anytime you interact with any, you know, web application, those messages, there's no reason they can't be routed over the lighting network in the same way, right? So if I want to access an API or buy something on an e-commerce store or send a text message over Twilio or, you know, basically anything, any API, any service can become lightning enabled where you can route around traditional HTTP and send these request responses. You know, the server will receive your message and key send back to you over the Lightning Network a response. And so I think that's where this is really going. And to me, this messenger is sort of just the proof of concept to show, hey, this works, we can do this. And it's sort of a platform to continue to expand upon and explore
0: that grander vision. That's really interesting. So turning the conversation just a little bit away from the Juggernaut app and more towards Lightning Network, You know, one of the things that has always been really challenging about using the Lightning Network is it's just hard to use. And so companies in the space have sort of come up with ways to add a little bit of centralization, take a little bit of the trustlessness away, but to make it a lot easier to use. And specifically, I'm thinking about the onboarding services. We've talked about a couple on the show recently, but none are coming to mind at the moment. What do you think about those types of services that basically strap a quasi-centralized service on top in order to make it easier for people to use the true decentralized application, which requires, frankly, a lot less trust? Is this a direction that the network sort of needs to go in order to really garner real-life use? Or do you think that it's like a shortcut that doesn't wind up helping us in the end?
1: I think, in my opinion, it's like the million-dollar question, and it's something I think about a lot. It's really difficult, and I guess I'm not sure I'm 100% confident in my opinion, but where I'm at today is that I think it is helpful. I think, like you said, it's extremely hard for someone to use Juggernaut, even if they aren't new to Bitcoin and Lightning Network, it's still a pain. You know, you have to get Bitcoin somehow, you have to get a Lightning Node, you have to run a Bitcoin Node, you have to do all this stuff, and now you can finally use Juggernaut. And so, like you mentioned, there's an obvious trade-off between convenience and, you know, actual benefit of the censorship resistance, decentralized peer-to-peer network and all that. And so In my opinion, I think it's okay to onboard people in a more centralized way, like look at something like Coinbase, right? I think maybe some of the ideas in the Lightning Network are like the Casa nodes and the Nodal and all these guys. They're not really centralized at all. They're making it more consumer-friendly to onboard by making it a node in a box. I just buy this node for a couple hundred bucks and... Now I'm on the lighting network. So that's sort of like the easy way for someone who decided that this is what I want. I want to be self-sovereign. I want to control my money and my identity and my privacy. You know, you need to go that way. And so I think what you've seen a couple of the mobile apps do is what you're trying to get at, which is this idea of I'm going to run a big centralized lighting node and kind of partition it in a way that I manage the accounts and channels for my users. Everyone does it slightly differently, but that is an approach we're seeing where it's sort of like a managed node where I don't have to know about the Lightning Network and I'm not really getting all the benefits, but I can use it. And so at the end of the day, what I think is going to happen is you're going to see a spectrum from fully centralized all the way to I'm running my node on a Raspberry Pi in a closet. And I think the goal, and this is true of all of Bitcoin, not just the Lightning Network and of some kind of layer of patients, is we want to help people move along that spectrum. And so the masses will start on a fully centralized, easy to use solution. And as they become more comfortable and more aware of the reasons, you know, for themselves, why they want to move down the spectrum towards being more self-sovereign. And I hope that there's going to be a path to help people. I think we've seen it with like the company like Give Bitcoin. The idea is, you know, make it super easy for them to start and then kind of educate them. And hopefully that education will lead them down the path to self-sovereignty. Also, I think another potential force is the thing you kind of opened this, which is, You know, the more and more censorship we see happen from government companies and all this stuff, it's going to naturally drive people in this direction. And so I think there's going to be kind of a dual force here. Hopefully, we'll be able to produce things of actual value that people want to use to get to do these things. But if not, you know, the governments and other forces might essentially force them this way.
0: Well, John, I really appreciate your time today. If people are interested in learning more about Juggernaut, people are interested in trying it out, kind of how can they get involved? Where should they find you?
1: Yeah, you can always reach me on Twitter at JohnContrella97. You can find out more about Juggernaut at getjuggernaut.com. And if you're a developer, designer, or product person and want to help out, explore this idea, please either message me on Twitter or come to our GitHub repository. You know, we're looking for contributors. We need all the help we can.
0: And the project is fully open source under MIT license, or how are you doing it?
1: Yeah, right now it's completely free to use, completely open source, and always will be. I mean, it's kind of the mantra
0: here. All right, well, we'll have all those links in the show notes, and thank you very much for your time. Yeah, thank you. We'd like to thank eToro for sponsoring this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Why use eToro? eToro is a large, well-established, U.S.-regulated trading platform that has over a trillion dollars of trading volume on the platform per year. eToro offers powerful trading tools made simple. You can create a diverse crypto portfolio, get access to smart charts and analysis on every asset, and eToro also has social features and the opportunity to practice and learn with a virtual trading mode. eToro offers low spreads, no commissions, and no hidden fees. Why wait? Getting started takes just minutes at eToro.com. That's E-T-O-R-O dot com. Crypto assets are volatile and trading them carries risk. Please trade responsibly. I'm here with Alex Gladstein, Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation, among other things. Alex, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. So there's a saying that money doesn't change a person, but it reveals or even magnifies who they've always been. In the age of the pandemic, my impression is increasingly that that saying can be applied to governments and companies too, along the lines of crisis doesn't change them, but it reveals and magnifies what they are and allows them to more easily do the things that they already wanted to do. In this crisis, we've seen economies around the world largely and unilaterally shut down. We've seen drones with heat-sensitive cameras detecting and finding people. We've seen what looks like a major uptick in censorship of First Amendment-protected speech on public square platforms like YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, when people try to talk about things which fall outside the preferred lines of thinking. In the U.S., this all feels like it's a change, like something kind of broke when all of this happens. But given the global scope of your work, I'm really curious, is this actually new, or is it just new to the Western world and perhaps my experience?
2: I love the quote. It's a nice place to start, and I find it very apt. I'd like to just look at three countries in this lens, Taiwan, China, and Hong Kong. And I believe that, yes, this crisis reveals a lot more about the leadership of these countries and the population of these countries than you might ordinarily see. So just starting with China. So what's been revealed obviously, is that the Chinese Communist Party tried to cover up the outbreak at the beginning using censorship and lies and obfuscation. This has been extensively reported everywhere from the New York Times to Asian outlets to BBC. And what we have found out is that essentially, you know, in late December at Wuhan Central Hospital, there were doctors who realized something was brewing, that there was a novel coronavirus that was looking like it was spreading from human to human. And they reported it dutifully, you know, per their job in a noble way to the authorities. And instead of snapping into action and actually trying to like stop this thing, the authorities decided to cover it up and to actually silence and intimidate the doctors and even disappear some of them. And one of the main reasons was because Xi Jinping did not want to disrupt the economy in China, which is a similar thing that you'll be able to relate with probably no matter what country you're in, you know, no government wants to disrupt the economy, which is fair. But what ended up happening is he had his big party that he wanted to throw in Wuhan from January 14 to 17 for the Communist Party. It was supposed to be like a really big thing and it was supposed to be in Wuhan, the capital of Hubei province, and he didn't want it disrupted. So what they actually did is they censored and intimidated the doctors and prevented them from sharing this information. And then they had like basically a social media blackout for like 10 days. And then they threw this big party. If you look at photos, nobody's wearing masks. The video's online. He doesn't mention coronavirus at all. And then only a couple days later, on January 23rd, does he lock down Wuhan. Okay. And in this period of time, from when they knew to when they took action, 7 million people left Wuhan. They went throughout China. They went throughout the world. And they really kick-started this pandemic. And the World Health Organization was complicit in helping the Chinese government cover this up. So. I think when you look at China, this virus has revealed to us that they will do anything to put their own interests above the public good and the citizens, even though they are noble, even though they are brave. They're in a situation where what they can do is very, very limited. So that's kind of what we've learned from looking at this virus through the lens of China. Taiwan is a completely different story. Taiwan authorities knew about this thing in late December. There's emails from them to their Chinese counterparts and to the World Health Organization trying to find out what was going on, hinting at the fact that it looked like it was human-to-human transmission. You know, they announced their response to this in mid-January, and since then, they've probably had the best response in the world, pound for pound, to this disease. And they've done it in a relatively open and democratic way. They have coordinated centrally, but in a way that is accountable to the people, where they're answering all the free press's questions about what's happening, They started to mass-produce masks. They started to do testing. They started to shut down certain non-essential things. But schools are open in Taiwan. You know, it's not normal, but it's not that far away. They're even playing sports without fans in stadiums. The only baseball you can watch in the world right now is in Taiwan. And I think they've done so admirably. And, you know, they've revealed their true nature. But the one thing that we do need to understand is that even the most progressive democratic governments have a weak spot for surveillance. And that's seen in Taiwan. So even this government that I would say probably has done the best job, pound for pound, in terms of just very few deaths, like very little impact on society. Yes, it's a country of 24 million. It's not a small place. But they even have dabbled with this, like trying to use public health records and cell phone tracking and geofencing. And they've done some stuff that I view as very unhelpful. And what's interesting is that citizen journalists I know in Taiwan have pressed the government on this. And they've gone to parliament and it's all on record. And they've said, have these like digital contact tracing or cell phone surveillance things been useful? And the government has basically said only in one case, only in one case was this sort of mass surveillance approach useful. So they've actually been honest with the people. But, you know, at the end of the day, it does teach us that even the most progressive governments are going to be lured by the siren's call using surveillance to to tackle problems. The third kind of different lens is Hong Kong. Hong Kong has had arguably at least as good of a response as Taiwan. It's a society, I mean, there's like seven deaths in a massive megalopolis that's right next to China. It's pretty amazing to see. And I was able to interview Joshua Wong, one of the leaders of the Hong Kong protest movement the other day, and I was asking him, you know, how does this make any sense? Is this Carrie Lam and the regime? Are they revealing their competence and actually that they should be in charge? And he said, no, 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 no. What this reveals about Hong Kong is that there's a decentralized response from the citizenry that's incredible. He was basically saying the government is incompetent. They refuse to shut down the border with China. Like the democracy protesters were asking Carrie Lam to shut down the border because in January, because they knew what was going on. So this is a society that, you know, lived through SARS. They were prepared. Apparently, 98% of Hong Kongers wear masks and 80% of them from the end of January until now have essentially social distanced and worked remotely where they can and have just been trying to be as minimal as possible with gatherings. They've been really smart. And this has led to an amazing response with like a handful of deaths. And again, what it reveals to us is that the power of Hong Kong is in the citizenry, not in the regime. I hope that helps with looking at that question in the context of what's happening across the world today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And a follow up on that, What you said in the first two circumstances, and then something that's been kind of a broader thought that I've just been having all the time is that government responses around the world seem to largely be built around this idea of what is politically most dangerous for them. And initially, it would have been very dangerous for them to make a big deal out of this, because in the event that it's not a big deal, then it looks like government's overreacting. But then in the kind of aftermath of it, now we're seeing what looks a lot to me like a series of overreactions where all of these very, very harsh actions are being taken in terms of the level of control that governments are exercising as a way to sort of assuage any attacks against them for not having done enough. And I think that this is very clear and easy to see in the United States when suddenly this incredibly partisan system that we have became incredibly bipartisan because everybody agreed that, well, we might as well spend money so that it's not our fault if this thing goes badly. So, I mean, like, Can governments deal with these types of things, or is that just the nature of government as a kind of butt covering mechanism?
2: Well, I think they can. Obviously, I already gave the example of Taiwan, but there's other democracies that have performed really well within New Zealand, Iceland. There have been countries like Portugal that are doing really well. There have been even certain countries across Latin America and Africa that are doing better than others. When it comes to the United States, let's just break this down. The federal government has been unforgivably incompetent. I mean, we learned the other day from a scoop that essentially the Health and Human Services Secretary had appointed at the end of January, someone to lead the nation's response to COVID, whose past six years had been spent running a labradoodle business. This is literally, I'm not making this up. This is what happened. And our dear leader has been all over the map, ranging from it's just the flu to everybody will be back by Easter to now, you know, maybe we should be injecting ourselves with some sort of disinfectant. Like, this is literally happening. Meanwhile, regionally and locally, there's been, like, I would say varying degrees of really impressive responses. California is a quote-unquote nation, if you want to listen to Gavin Newsom, of 42 million people, give or take. And, you know, yes, there's been a tragedy. We've had 1,400 deaths, I think. But if you look at actually that compared to Europe, California's doing way better. And I would say that California is doing it without any onerous restrictions. Like, look, I live in California. I can leave my house. I don't have a curfew. I can go to the store. There's no checkpoints on the highways. Hospitals aren't doing mass surveillance. They're not doing digital contract tracing. There's no apps. So I think we're kind of handling it in a way that I'm actually fairly proud of. There are other parts of the United States that are doing much worse. So I think you can look at California as a pretty good example of how an american response might look like in terms of a good public private sector mix of reactions i mean you know while the federal government was again unforgivable here and you know wouldn't or couldn't provide us the tests we needed stanford university decided to create its own tests and one of my family members was actually able to get a test in mid-march from an academic center do you know what i mean so there's been like this academic scientific kind of decentralized response And in America, it's highlighted the roles of governors and mayors in a big, big way. And I think that's just inevitable because this whole thing is going to just cause us to retreat from globalization a little bit and even retreat from nationalization and force us to spend more time with our families and our communities and develop these horizontal ties that are really important. So I think that that may be a good long-term trend. But I do think that there's been some democratic governments around the world that have done well. I do think that there have been some states that have done very well. And all things being equal, almost all dictatorships have performed abhorrently. I mean, Singapore is like the one exception when it comes to it seems like they did okay. But even now, what we've learned, again, what does the virus reveal about you? What it reveals is that they don't care about the vulnerable. And Singapore has the worst Gini coefficient of any advanced economy, meaning most unequal. And Singapore has all these migrant workers, just like the countries in the Gulf. And what turns out is the authorities didn't care about them. They weren't providing medical attention to them. And the virus is like the great leveler. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what status you are. And what's ended up happening is in Singapore, all of these cramped detention facilities, basically is what I would call them, you know, where people had no proper medical care, they experienced breakouts. And now all of a sudden, Singapore which was touting this high technology response where everybody was using this trace together app to fight the virus. All of a sudden, they're like collapsing and they have the most cases per day in Southeast Asia. So the techno-utopia has been shattered by the reality of the callousness of the leaders. That's the best dictatorship. I mean, the rest range from Russia, where Moscow, I mean, there's videos leaking out of Moscow where it looks like it's a complete disaster. China is still unbelievably reporting I mean, does anyone actually think that 4,000 deaths? I mean, how can anyone believe that? 4,000 deaths in China. I mean, personally, based on eyewitness testimony and talking to dissidents and opposition groups, I can't imagine there's less than 100,000 deaths. Cannot imagine. Yet the news media is trying to get us to believe that there's 4,000 deaths in China. I mean, what a joke. In fact, the virus has caused mass economic devastation in China. From the numbers they're willing to admit, it's going to be a 6% contraction, which is absolutely historic. But as you and I know, those numbers are probably too rosy. So anyway, China, bad situation. Iran, one of the worst. I mean, Iran is one of the reasons why we have the global pandemic in the first place due to this joint construction project between Hubei province and Iran. They started contracting cases in January. The regime, first of all, denied it to the people meaning they said it wasn't a big deal. They encouraged people to keep doing their religious pilgrimages and to continue going to mosques and to continue doing group prayer. Meanwhile, the virus started eviscerating the Iranian society, and it started at the top. At one point, about 10% of the Iranian parliament had it. Numerous ministers and top-level advisors and diplomats died. Top generals died. And we don't really know what the full impact is, because there's no free media in Iran. But suffice it to say that We've now seen that there are, from outer space, you can see mass graves that have been dug across the country. So, you know, the idea that 3,000 have died, again, unlikely. Like, you're much more likely, if you're in an authoritarian state today, to be in a place like Turkey or Russia or Iran or China than you are to be in Singapore. You know, for me, I'd much rather be in a democracy. I know that a lot of democracies haven't done very well. But look, we have a free press and there's a high bar and people are pushing and asking questions. And I do think that, you know, at the end of the day, as has been borne out by long-term studies, open societies deal with public health crises better than closed ones. So that's, I guess, something else that kind of has been revealed, at least to me.
0: Okay, so there's a bunch of stuff that I want to talk about, but let's just focus in on one particular thing. We know that the data is bad. It's not just China. We know that the data is not bad in like, a we're doing great, we're doing poorly sense, but we know that the data is wrong. Again, there was a study out of, California, maybe last week, that said that in one city where they did comprehensive testing, they were finding that the presence of antibodies was somewhere between 50 and 80 times the actual confirmed cases. And in New York, I believe they just completed the first large scale study that said that in New York state, something at like 16% of the population in this random study showed antibodies and was exposed versus, you know, something like 22% in New York.
2: And that's so important because in America, we're eventually going to find out. We're going to find out what happened. Maybe not perfectly, but we're going to find out more or less what happened. The Chinese people will never find out what happened. And it just makes me sad,
0: you know? My point is, I think that governments around the world have sort of retreated to this data-driven approach where we're doing things based on what the data tells us. But at the same time, we know that the data is wrong. And yet we're still using it as sort of the basis to make these decisions. So again, I come back to like, is this just butt covering? Is it just like political expediency and like we can't do anything else about it because of that? Or I mean, it just seems like it's such a strange way to respond to such a critical issue.
2: Look, someone shared an image that I feel like perfectly shares my thoughts on this crisis. It's a Venn diagram. There's three circles that come together in the middle. One of the circles says, I'm really worried about COVID-19 and it's very dangerous. One of the circles says, I'm really worried about the economic devastation to come and it's very dangerous. And one of the circles says, I'm really worried about the authoritarian overreaction to the virus and it's very dangerous. You can think all three things are true. For me, I've been watching people, it seems like they have a hard time understanding that you can actually be worried about all three. Some people are like in their quest to be overly concerned about one or the other they seem to be sacrificing the third. But you can be reasonably understanding that this thing is not the flu, is crazy dangerous. Just to give you one example that should make the point, you know, we're seeing daily death tolls in New York City, not seen since 9-11. I mean, the flu doesn't do that. But at the same time, you're watching the mass restriction of civil liberties in a way that is very inappropriate and permanent. The Human Rights Foundation chairman Gary Kasparov has a, you know, a good Soviet joke he likes to tell. Nothing is more permanent than a temporary measure, is what he says. And you know, it's going to be true. Just for example, all these restrictions on gatherings. I mean, a lot of them are going to be around for a while. I mean, Norway and Australia have already said that they expect to restrict the movement of their populations well into 2021. So even in democracies, we're being faced with this. Now, of course, here we'll be able to debate. We have newspapers. We're going to have an election later this year, inshallah, Uh, that actually happens. But a lot of people around the world are less fortunate. I mean, you live, four plus billion people live in a country that doesn't have free and fair elections. So they're kind of stuck. And governments have absolutely, as the adage goes, you know, every crisis is an opportunity for them. And they have, in different ways, totally gone overreach on executive power, monetary power, and surveillance power. Just to give a couple examples, Hungary, the leader of Hungary, who was democratically elected, Viktor Orban, has long tried to erode the balance of power and turn Hungary into basically a mini Putin state. And finally, the virus gave him what he needed to literally announce rule by decree, which is, if you look up the word dictatorship in a dictionary, that's what it means. So now there's 10 million people in the EU under authoritarianism. Let that sink in. Meanwhile, governments everywhere from the Philippines to Zimbabwe, are you know announcing all kinds of different measures i was looking at some admitted propaganda coming out of cuba we don't know what the actual news is there but apparently the government's just arresting people who aren't wearing masks so there was even a report out of rwanda that the regime there assassinated people who were not taking proper precautions so there's a wild overreach by governments that needs to be very carefully monitored there's a very thirsty response from the technology industry And it's been really sad for me to see, and this is probably a good fit for your audience, but it's weird to see like people who post Patriot Act were very hopefully, you know, burned by this global surveillance state that was built. All of a sudden, they seem to be willing to make an exception. It's really strange. Even Snowden and the ACLU have basically said, well, you know, we should be careful, but maybe digital contact tracing could be good. And I'm like, no, no, no there's no good. Like we saw all these investors and journalists cheer on Apple and Google for announcing that they were going to start unrolling a Bluetooth beacon tracking protocol that would go into more than one third of the world's phones. And people were like, this is great. And I'm like, whoa, like we don't even have evidence that digital contact tracing even works. Like contact tracing is the critical art of when someone gets admitted to a hospital as sick, that you sit down with them and you interview them and you find out where they've went. That is not possible to replicate or automate using technology. It's just not. And, you know, certainly not with cell phone location or GPS. Now with Bluetooth, you can get closer. Okay, fine. It gets down to the inch. But it still is horribly inaccurate. It doesn't tell you whether you were in the same room with somebody. And furthermore, again, nothing's more permanent than a temporary measure. Google and Apple are planning to roll this protocol out in the next month It's not like it's going to go away in six months. So, you know, and Moxie Marlinspike had a good thread on this. Like, as soon as you announce yourself as positive in the app, your previous little beacons get sort of, in a way, de-anonymized and linked to you. And that's going to get taken advantage of by companies. So, like, companies who are already passively collecting your Bluetooth data will be able to identify you as a positive and then market all kinds of crap to you. So, there's some really worrying stuff about going down this road and it's a slippery slope to color coding. Honestly, folks, like that's where this is going. In China, they've opened up part of the economy, but in order to leave your house or go to a job or get on a public transportation, you need to show on your app that you're green and not yellow or red. And you know, that's not a medical determination. It's not like linked into your body. That's a decision that some bureaucrat makes that you're a particular color. And that's not what I want to do. I don't want to be color coded. So let's be careful with like getting all excited about the mass implementation of like much more accurate citizen tracking. I honestly think it's crazy. And I think this is the big culture war right now that we're not really talking about is the fact that COVID is making people a lot more comfortable with mass surveillance.
0: Let's take a moment and talk about that now because you went where, frankly, I was already going next. There's, as you said, a big conversation going on right now about this idea of digital contact tracing. So in large part, as you said, we're going to see these roll out largely relying on Bluetooth technology. And Bluetooth technology is amazing and it does a lot of things really well. But one thing that it doesn't do particularly well is it doesn't tell you how far you are from somebody you're connected to or a device you're connected to via Bluetooth, right? It's a very inaccurate measure of that sort of thing. And also, like if you're standing on one side of a wall and someone's on the other side of the wall, well, it doesn't really know that. And so it was never intended to be used in that way. And yet it looks like it's going to be rolled out in mass. And beyond that, another example of this that comes prominently to mind for me is this idea that companies are doing temperature checks, right? Sometimes multiple times a day. And in theory, that sounds like it's a great idea. But now we know that some and perhaps even the majority of cases which are contagious are not symptomatic. And that means that they necessarily won't have a fever. And that means that necessarily these temperature checks won't actually alert anybody to anything. It gets perhaps the most obvious of cases, but it doesn't actually solve the problem in any sort of meaningful way for what appears to be a disease that is, above everything else, incredibly infectious, right?
2: Remember, this is sort of like your listeners will know all about Facebook's Libra project. I want them to consider something that I just want to call the Libra effect. When Libra first came out, it was supposed to be this utopian technology that was going to be permissionless and decentralized, and it was going to give the masses access to a more robust financial technology we all know how that went you know now it's a very like straight jacketed very much basically just like a super venmo which will be you know reliant on all the rules and regulations of the united states government so in the same way you had google and apple come out with this honestly very vague there were three or four pages of technical documentation that were extremely vague outlining a protocol admitting that this was just the protocol. So governments and corporations are going to build the apps on top of this thing. But I think it's going to be similar. you we are already seeing governments in Germany and France tell Apple and Google, this is too privacy protecting. So even if you're to believe that the Google and Apple architects are noble and focused on privacy, which I would even dispute based on, number one, their track record, and number two, vulnerabilities in what they have designed based on what people like Moxie Marlinspike have pointed out, But let's just say that they're good people and they're actually trying to do this the right way. Well, guess what? The governments and corporations making the contact tracing apps using this protocol aren't, and they're going to suck up all kinds of PII data and create the craziest surveillance state you've ever seen. So that's that. Moving on to the temperature checks thing, we're the change that we want to see in the world these days. In my head, I'm thinking about when will I be comfortable going to a restaurant again, right? do I want to see gloves on the waiters and waitresses? Do I want to see masks? Are they going to wear masks? And is there going to be a temperature check situation in the kitchen? This is, of course, the reality in China, right? So, you know, when you either order food in China or when you go to a restaurant now, if your area has been like unlocked down, the servers, you know, do temperature checks. The question is, as you're pointing out, you know, is that bunk science or is that helpful? You know, and like, the jury's out. So we're making all these huge changes to our societies really fast. The virus is like an accelerator in many ways. And a lot of it's reliant on bunk science. I mean, there's no independent study that says that digital contact tracing even works. There's no evidence. And temperature checks, I'm not sure. I don't know. Maybe you know more about that than me, but I would just be very careful about this mentality. Like technology is going to save us. I think in the end of the day, it's going to be hand washing and masks and social distancing an investment in our healthcare infrastructure that's going to save us not technology.
0: Okay, so you know I really appreciate your time today Alex. You know, before we wrap one question open ended you might not even have an answer for this, but you know, amidst kind of all of the fervor that's going on and all of the noise that's kind of invaded all of our lives from all of these actions that people are trying to take, what are you thinking about that isn't being discussed or what's a narrative that you think is true? but that isn't currently an acceptable narrative. And so it isn't getting talked about.
2: Well, it'd be remiss for me to join the show and not talk about Bitcoin. <laughs> Let me just explain why I think it's so elegantly placed for us to use as a tool right now. It really addresses the two big threats that are coming from governments. You have the overreach of authoritarian power and surveillance, which we've discussed. And in my view, as I know, I think you'll get into it also on the show, You can use Bitcoin as a base protocol for transacting and communicating in a way that does not disclose your identity stack. And that to me is like very, very important. Number two, as it is seen in the Genesis block, Bitcoin is a political act. It's created to separate money from state and particularly it was created to prevent corporate bailouts and the Cantillon effect and created to prevent the people who create the money and distribute the money from benefiting unfairly at the expense of everybody else. So as we're watching these trillions of dollars being printed, and I know that it's very nuanced and I know that actually in reality, the US government can probably print huge amounts of money without really having a negative impact, at least in the short term, simply because there's such massive global demand for dollars. I understand that. And I understand that we're heading towards MMT. And I understand that we probably won't see hyperinflation in the United States. And a lot of Bitcoiners are confused about that. There's a lot that goes into that. But long-term The effects are pretty obvious. Long term, you're gonna have more dollars and fewer goods and services. So, I mean, it's pretty clear to me. But Bitcoin allows us to have a tool where we can address these two fears or these two concerns that we're dealing with. One, again, authoritarian overreach, and the other, the abuse of the money system. So I'm just kind of grateful that I can opt out, right? And I can like opt into this other system and help develop it and help grow it. And I think it's just such an important tool to have. If we didn't have it, I would be not as excited or optimistic about the future. Let's just put it that way.
0: Alex Gladstein is at Gladstein on Twitter and is chief strategy officer at HRF.org. Thank you very much for your time and perspective today. Thanks for having me on, Adam. And that's a wrap on episode 434 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Thank you very much for listening. You can find new episodes every Sunday on coindesk.com, Let's Talk Bitcoin.com and of course on the show's dedicated feed at ltbshow.com. This episode was sponsored by etoro.com, thank you very much, with music by Jared Rubens from Ether and Gertie Beats. Today's show featured John Cantrell, Alex Gladstein, and Adam B. Levine. This episode was edited by Jonas. Have any questions or comments? You can send me an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And tune in again next week when I'll be rejoined by the other hosts of the show, for a discussion of a new and growing trend in US based mining, plus a lot more. We'll see you next time.